500 years. <laughs> Hello, this is Jeff Till, back with the 500years.org podcast. Today is November 19th, 2015. This podcast will not have a specific theme. It'll be a mini-cast, uh, just covering a couple announcements about our new book page, and then some also backfill on the last podcast on wealth inequality. First off, I can barely believe that I had an hour and a half worth of material all on wealth inequality. And even with that, there were still some parts in my notes that I didn't get to or neglected to put in. And then I also had some other reflections as I listened back to the podcast. Hey guys, Disney Collector here, and today we're going to have some fun with Sparkling Play-Doh and Disney Princess. This box comes with six different colors. Green, pink, purple, blue, hot pink, and yellow. We also got two molding tools so we can make butterflies and hearts. So on the podcast, last podcast, uh, in the where I was sort of going through the beginning, where I was showing the bad aesthetics of wealth creation in weird ways, and I hit on uh, fascism and the supercharged stock market and other things that seemed illegitimate, I did include in there uh, a story about a woman who made $4.2 million unboxing toys and then said that it was socially unjust. And now what I meant to do is come back and address that, because frankly, I think that's totally awesome. Uh, so that little clip of the video there was from Play-Doh, Sparkle, Princess, Ariel, Elsa, Anna, Disney, Frozen, Magic Clip, Glitter, Glider, Magic Clip Dolls uh, by Fun Toys Collector, a different woman. And this YouTube video has 386,280,448 views. So how the uh, YouTube and Google payment system works is that there's an advertisement that runs before this. And if a certain amount of people actually watch the whole thing or click through to the advertiser, then some micropayment, I'm guessing less than a penny, is paid to the YouTube creator. Now, what's amazing is that this is so popular because it literally is just a woman who bought a $12 toy of Play-Doh and Princess Dolls. Uh, she opens up the packaging and talks about what's inside it. And what's interesting is my daughter, who's four, has uh, will sit for hours and watch these videos. Now, I don't really think that it's a bad thing. I think it's great, even though I don't understand it. Uh, that's sort of one of the wonders of value creation and the market in general, is that it creates things that only certain people really want to enjoy. So there's somebody who makes a lot of money on uh, Fast and Furious movies, even though I don't watch them. There's people who make a lot of money uh, filming golf on television, even though I don't like to watch that. There's people who make orange liqueur, which I find disgusting, uh, onward and onward. So it doesn't really matter that we understand why these things are popular. Uh, we just have to be happy that the little niche things that we like are available and that wealth accumulation is is, is attracting them, uh, creating the, the both the viability of the product and the viability of the audience for this. Uh, there's even a market for Bill Maher shows. Some people like that. So I, I hate to say it, but maybe 
the existence of Bill Maher talking on TV actually makes some of us wealthier, even though I find them wholly destructive. The Jews didn't do anything to deserve the hate they got, but America's super rich? In the last 30 years, even though worker productivity went up 90%, income only went up 8%. If I was working twice as hard and someone else was reaping almost all the reward, I'd hate them. <laughs> and I'd also want to know, how could that happen? Well, billionaire Sam Zell knows the answer to that. He said the rest of America should stop bitching about the 1% and realize they are the 1% because they work harder. Okay, now we do need to come after you with Pitchfork. <laughs> so there's uh, our funny man, one percenter Bill Maher again, uh, invoking violence towards the one percent. I, as I commented in the last podcast, he must realize that that pitchfork would be pointed at him with his net worth of thirty million. Uh, but then I was thinking, like, if he did want to use probably the most popular mechanism for redistributing wealth, which would be a very high tax rate on the one percent even if he went up to 90% of his income or his assets, uh, he would still remain with $3 million in net worth, which would still put him in that 1%. So at the same time, I think he knows that it's not a zero-sum game in his heart, that when someone has accumulated a lot of wealth or a lot of capital, that they don't actually make anyone else poor. Uh, he doesn't look at the $30 million in his a brokerage account and think that everyone else is $30 million poor. He probably thinks very much so that he has created value and very much deserves that money and that it has been a net positive exchange. It's just kind of funny that he can't see it for somebody else. And sadly, the way that he actually created wealth was his, you know, his product to the marketplace, his value add was railing against and promoting violence against wealthy people. How funny. Going back to the Sam Harris article I read in the last podcast, there was another point that I wanted to make that I missed, and it was about uh, Harris's th theoretical trillionaire that created 30% unemployment because he created the ultimate labor-saving device. I wanted to make sure that we understood that when someone has a net worth or a lot of money, uh, or, or rather a net worth that's valued in a lot of money, that money has to still be active in the economy to be worth anything. If we think about someone who has a $50 million hotel chain or hospital chain, their net worth is $50 million, putting them in that really uh, elite group of very wealthy people. But the hotel chain itself is only worth that money if it's actually employing hundreds of people and allowing thousands and thousands of people to stay in those rooms. So the asset of the hotel chain, the buildings uh, with the rooms and the beds and the restaurants and everything else, only retain that value if they're in use uh, in the greater economy. So even though that 50 million is attributed to that one person who owns the hotel chain, the actual $50 million worth of assets is being enjoyed and uh, worked on by many, many people. This would be the case with Harris's hypothetical trillionaire. Uh, if he were to not have that money still active in the economy somehow by what he owns, his, his, uh, his labor-saving device factory and whatever else new he's working on or his investments in other companies, then his trillion dollars would disappear. Now, if we were to pretend that he was a supervillain or was insane 
and he was just going to keep all of that wealth uh, shuttered away, like he bought a bunch of a fleet of trucks and a bunch of real estate, and he was just going to either destroy it or just keep it for himself, uh, then it would just sort of cease to have value. It would become a liability to him to just have to be able to keep it and maintain it and not have it being produced, uh, not having and producing any new wealth. Uh, also, if we were to imagine that he were just to take all of that in cash and gold and hide it away, which would be impossible because the the economy, I think, is only 17% uh, in cash. Uh, I know I had a friend who falsely believed that there was there had to be a physical dollar for every dollar's worth of wealth in the world. Uh, but even if that was true, that would still make cash only half of the wealth around. I don't know if that makes sense. Anyway, even if he were just to hide great sums of money from everyone else and, and hoard it, I think it would just cause sort of a deflationary event and everybody's uh, currency, the other currency that normal people had that were not the trillionaire would just go up in value. I think that's the case. Uh, I'm kind of an amateur in economics, so if someone knows has a better answer, uh, I'd be delighted to hear it. So I also wanted to talk a little bit about the reasons for why people are especially outraged by wealth inequality, even though it is the very mechanism that creates wealth for everybody. I just started to read a new book that was highly recommended to me called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, What the Rich Teach Their Kids About Money That the Poor and the Middle Class Do Not by Robert Kiyosaki. And so far I'm tearing through it. It's pretty good. The premise is that Essentially, all financial education, whether it's personal finance or economic education, typically is, is poorly done in school and then is only transmitted by people's parents. So rich people tend to teach their children financially how to become wealthy, and middle class and poor people teach their children how to be middle class and poor. So the premise right there, I think, is pretty good. And the attempt with the book is sort of a de-schooling process, uh, maybe not totally de-schooling because part of it's education, but it's also a de-parenting guide to teach people how to think uh, about being wealthy and what it really entails. So anyway, I'm just going to read a little bit of the book for you, uh, That I, a couple of passages that I thought were pretty interesting. Just as set up, the book is about a man who grew up in Hawaii as a boy. And he had his his proper biological father, who was, although very well educated, uh, always struggled, and also very well paid uh, at a government job, always struggled to pay his bills and accumulate any wealth. He then started apprenticing under what he called his rich dad, which was a local businessman, the father of his friend, who apprenticed him in a proper financial education. In this scene, uh, it's sort of written almost like a fiction book. Uh, is a dialogue between the rich dad and, I believe, Mike, the young 10-year-old boy. Smiled rich dad. You see, your dad went to school and got an excellent education so he could get a high-paying job, but he still has money problems because he never learned anything about money in school. On top of that, he believes in working for money. And you don't? I asked. No, not really, said rich dad. If you want to learn to work for money, then stay in school. That is a great place to learn to do that. But if you want to learn how to have money work for you, then I will teach you that, but only if you want to learn. 
Wouldn't everyone want to learn that? I asked. No, said Rich Dad, simply because it's easier to learn to work for money, especially if fear is your primary emotion when the subject of money is discussed. I don't understand, I said with a frown. Don't worry about that for now. Just know that it's fear that keeps most people working at a job. The fear of not paying their bills, the fear of being fired, the fear of not having enough money, and the fear of starting over. That's the price of studying to learn a profession or trade, and then working for money. Most people become a slave to money, and then get angry at their boss. Skipping ahead a couple pages, I found another nice passage. It says Rich Dad, I just want you boys to have a chance to avoid the trap caused by those two emotions, fear and desire. Use them in your favor, not against you. That's what I want to teach you. I'm not interested in just teaching you to make a pile of money. That won't handle the fear or desire. If you don't first handle fear and desire, you can get rich. You'll only be a highly paid slave. So how do we avoid the trap, I asked. The main cause of poverty or financial struggle is fear and ignorance not the economy or the government or the rich. It's self-inflicted fear and ignorance that keeps people trapped. So you boys go to school and you get your college degrees, and I'll teach you how to stay out of that trap. The pieces of the puzzle were appearing. My highly educated dad had a great education and a great career, but school never told him how to handle money or his fear of it. It became clear that I could learn different and important things from the two fathers. So reflecting on that, I think what you see is a tremendous amount of financial and economic ignorance and fear. I think a lot of people see the gross consumption patterns that they see on television and presume that's the entirety of what a net worth is. Uh, they don't see the other side of it, which is the supply or the, the creation, the wealth creation side, which is very difficult and is also the very process that makes everyone else uh, be able to consume more. Uh, so it's frustrating. And probably the only answer is to get rid of the finance and economic education that's in place right now, uh, which is one is in the horrible thing that is public school. And then as best we can enable people to escape the shadow of their parents uh, and have them sort of indoctrinated into that poor person, middle middle class, or rich uh, passing down of information. I don't, I don't know how that would work. I'm not saying we should create a program or anything, but people have to uh, escape their parental biases in order to really learn what's going on. So I think that's all I'm going to talk about uh, as the extension of uh, last month's podcast on wealth inequality. Uh, I apologize. I found a couple audio issues and I don't know what's going on, but I'm not going to go back and re-record it because I, I want to get this done. So moving on from wealth inequality, I can now give you my big announcement. Uh, I just released my first book and I have a new book section on 500years.org. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast or have been looking at my blog site, you'll have seen everything that's in the book um, just about. But I'm assuming this podcast will be living on in history for hundreds of years. So people in the future can now go back and try to find my print edition book. It's called Rise Above School, uh, Making the Critical Decision to Abandon School and Embrace Home Education. 
Uh, it's almost a pamphlet at 90 pages long. Um, but inside, what it does is it talks about my... It takes, it takes the 54 cases for home education. That was the first podcast. Uh, as well as what do you want to be when you grow up, which I think was my second podcast, and uses those as sort of the cornerstone uh, for a book on making the decision to take your kids out of school, which, as you may have heard me say, was a very challenging process, took a year and a lot of research. But so now people can pick up this handy book and hopefully uh, move through that process a lot faster than I ever did. Uh, Inside the book. The first chapter is why you should rescue your children for school, which makes the case for taking your kid out. Number two is making the decision is really, really hard. It talks about making both the emotional and the intellectual case for taking your kids out of school and choosing to homeschool. The next section is the complete case for home education, which is now updated to 58 arguments uh, against school and for home education. What do you want to be when you grow up is the whole work identity, college identity, school identity, occupational identity conversation that was had in the second podcast. The next chapter is having empathy for your children is critical. And again, talks about uh, putting yourself in your child's place or even imagining what your experience was uh, as a kid going through school and understanding that had you not been there, that you would probably have had a much better time and would not have to have reversed so many school issues that were inflicted upon you. And that's almost uh, an entering point into a de-schooling process for your own person. Uh, I talk about the next chapter is my personal path to home education. I actually tell my story. Uh, The next chapter is talking about home education, which is about how you can talk to other people without having them spit on you or punch you in the face, uh, because it's a very, can be very incendiary topic overall. Uh, The next and final is how to get started, which is a checklist of things you can do to begin making the decision to homeschool your children. Then there's a conclusion and then an an appendix of media resources and acknowledgments. So I'm really excited about that. I haven't sold a copy yet. It's been out for a couple days. Uh, But there's really no need for you to buy one unless you want it as a souvenir or to give it to a gift to someone else because all the content is available in these podcasts or on the blog. Also, you can buy it to sort of support me, but it's such an insignificant amount of money uh, compared to my big fat salary that it won't really make a difference. Now, the other book that I'm in is, uh, hold on right here, is a compilation book that Skylar J. Collins put together called Unschooling Dads, 22 Testimonials on Their Unconventional Approach to Education. And it has uh, 22 written pieces. Uh, One of them is one that I wrote. And uh, it, it all just talks about personal experiences in unschooling your children from the father's perspective. Now, again, this one, if you're only interested in my piece, uh, it's on the blog at 500years.org, and it's also included in Rise Above School as two of the chapters. But there's also 21 other uh, neat accounts of what it means to unschool. So that's it for now. As I said, this was a mini-cast just some ideas about the last one and the announcement of the books. 
I think the next one is going to be on obligation, and hopefully I'll dig right in on Monday, uh, starting to do that one. And then I have two more, two coming up on uh, fascism in America and some other fun topics. I think I've, I've still got about like seven or ten podcasts uh, roughly mapped out, so we'll have some content going forward. Look for them about once per month is the rate that I hope to go. Uh, one last thing, it's my, my birthday This um, my birthday is this weekend, I turned 45 years old I was joking with my friend Isaac and Heather and Alicia uh, today that I was, I'm halfway there probably, uh, half, halfway to the death point and they all said oh no, 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 you know the medical community uh, will fix that by then, and which again goes back to the closing theme of the last podcast, which is how soon will we find a cure for death or prolong life a lot longer than it does now and how death will be the ultimate poverty and it got me thinking that when you when you look at how horny and desperate the, all the world's countries are including the United States to take healthcare and pharmacology and the whole you know science of having us be healthy how they're trying to take that out of the market system and it's going to look like the biggest Homer Simpson move of all times as we postpone the discovery of how to not get sick and how not to die anymore. It's going to look historically like one of the worst things that ever happened. And, uh, you know, Homer Simpson, saying it's a Homer Simpson move is makes it kind of trivial. But really, it's totally suicidal uh, that we are trying to take health care out of the market system and give it to the government. So that's all for now. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.